AFC podcast. My name is Victoria Fragnito, and I am joined by my co-host, Jim Galizia. Say hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. I'm not going to say hi, Jim. I did that last time, and it just became a bad recurring joke. <laughs> I'm a joke right here, right now, in this episode. Otherwise, it will be a thing, and I don't want it to be a thing. Never, never end. <laughs> I, I will be the king of bad jokes. Um, we are going to talk about a lot of things today, namely our day player, Jillian Bitko. Uh, we're going to talk about her acting career, her musical improv comedy show titled On the Spot. We're going to talk about her one-woman show, Synesthesia the Musical, Unarmed Man, another film on Amazon Prime that you guys can check out, and Citizens of New York, another project she's involved in. She's doing a lot of stuff. She's doing a lot of different projects. She's an actress, uh, but she's also a little bit behind the scenes. She writes a lot. Um, we're going to get into that a little bit later. We're also going to talk about her movie of choice, When Harry Met Sally, from 1989, two years before I was born. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. I'm not the hugest, uh, hugest? I'm not the biggest uh, romantic comedy fan. I don't know. We, we've already talked about this a little bit. Um, but, we're, you know, Jillian does do a lot of musical stuff. I, I do like musicals. Musicals are fun. What's your favorite I, musical? Do you have a favorite? Oh, oh God. Um, I would have it's to say next up to a can of worms there. Well, see, it's tough because, you know, as a theater person, there, you know, there's so many, there's a range of musicals. There's the classic musicals. There's, you know, this whole resurgence of musicals like Hair in the 60s and 70s. And then, you know, you have modern day musicals like rock operas and stuff like that. Um, but I would have to say my favorite is uh, Next to Normal. Uh, it won the Tony Award, I think, in 2008 or nine. Please don't quote me on those dates. Um, but it's, it's an incredible rock opera. It has a lot to do with um, depression, bipolar disorder, mental illness. It's not your typical, like, jazz hands musical. Um, but I, I love that show. That show, the music is incredible. The story is incredible. That's my favorite, for sure. For me, it, it's not a great musical if Neil Patrick Harris doesn't jump out and go, jazz hands. Uh, but that's not true. <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of Broadway shows. I have been to quite a few of them. I saw Wicked like three times. Uh, I saw the very last Broadway show for The Music Man. Uh, so that was fun. I've seen Jersey Boys. I've seen, recently saw, um, not a musical, but I saw the Harry Potter play. Mm -hmm. uh, the Cursed Child, and that's a huge two-parter. It's like a five-and-a-half, six-hour show. Uh, that was a great time. That was fun. I'm a big theater fan. It's just, uh, I, I don't like going to theater, like, by myself. I don't know if you've ever been to a show by yourself. Uh, no, I went to a movie recently. Not recently, recently, but, like, within the last two years by myself, and that was a new experience. But I, I don't know. I don't know if I would feel the same going to a theatrical show by myself. Some people love it. That's They love doing it. But I don't – something about that live interaction with the actors on stage and all that stuff, I feel like I would want a human that I'm connected with right next to me to share it with. Yeah. That's you just me. Like, funny buddy, like – Haha, ha, you see what they did up on stage. Oh my god. I this is great, or we both think this sucks, right? <laughs> <laughs> we can go after the intermission. Um, but I mean Don't do you know, that. That's rude. Don't do it. I've never done that. In fact, I've never been disappointed by a show. 
I'm easy to please. Uh, Harry Potter had like an hour and a half intermission. Um, they basically did. Between like, the two of them, right? Yeah. So well, I did it. You, sometimes some people do it in like they'll watch part one, like on a Saturday, and then I'll watch part two on Sunday. Um, I did the whole thing in one day. Uh, my family bought tickets. We said we'll spend the whole day. Uh, they came out from Long Island. We came into the city. And it was a great day. I mean, it was perfect to, like, watch part one. It was, like, two hours roughly or so. Um, maybe a little bit more. I'm, I'm not really remembering. Back before COVID. So it was, like, so long ago. Time was something completely different back then. Time means something completely different now. <laughs> it feels like a past life at this point. But uh, the show is, like, about two and a half something hours long. And then there's like an hour and a half break, which is perfect because by the time you get out of that show, it's probably like, I think it was like five, five thirty, mm-hmm. uh, and then the next show started at like seven. So of course we went to dinner, got some food, went back, watched the next part of the show. It's a great show, really fun. Um, more musicals though. Wicked is probably the one I've seen the most, so I guess I can say that's my favorite musical. Um, my favorite play, of course is scar tissue 100 percent oh thank you (laughs) i know that if we don't shower you with compliments you will leave you will just that's it the only reason i'm doing this is that people (laughs) tell me how wonderful i am (laughs) right if your ego is not up here you're done i'm leaving the room (laughs) (laughs) um also saw lion king i saw aladdin all the disney ones those were great Um, see that's now we're starting to get into territory where I feel a little about about movies and musicals and how they're crossing over each other. And oh, you don't think Rocky should have been a musical? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I think I'm really, I get it. Putting on a musical, especially on Broadway, is a multi-million dollar venture for one show. So you have to make sure people are going to care enough to come and see it and pay the money in order for you to keep paying the actors, paying to keep the lights on in the theater. But we've been completely inundated with these crossover musicals. And then after a while, I, it's just, why can't we do anything new? I mean, one of the reasons why I love Next to Normal so much is it's such an original idea. And the, the musicals that do the best are the ones that aren't cookie cutter off of, at least at the Tonys anyway, are the ones that aren't the cookie cutter off of, um, you know, movies and stories that have already been told. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm not the most versed in theater. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, my family says, why don't we see a Broadway show? And I go, great. And that's about it. And I see it and then I like it and then tell people about it when I can. But I don't, like, actively pursue it, if that makes sense. Uh, so when you said Next to Normal, I was like, sounds cool. Never heard of it. Uh, but of course I've heard of Lion King. Of course I've heard of Aladdin. Of course I've heard of all these big productions that are just reboots of reboots of reboots. Well, and that's exactly why they put those up there. Because they know that tourists coming in. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Times Square is inundated with those types of musicals and with all of the 
restaurant chain restaurants and chain stores that everybody knows is because everyone's all you know they come to new york and i remember when i was younger i would come to new york and not leave times square and be afraid to venture to anything that i didn't know so they see things that are familiar and comfortable and they're more likely to spend money on it even though it costs 50 million dollars more at the applebee's in times square as we know yeah. Um, it costs so much more and you get none of the deals, but you know what you're getting out of it. And if you know that you like the movie Tootsie, then you're more likely to go spend the, the ridiculous amount of money it costs to get two tickets to it. You yeah. Know, because, no, I like that story, so I'm probably going to like this. I will say, however, though, I think that movies turned into musicals tend to be better than musicals that are turned into movies. I will say that. Yes, I, I think... I would almost say that movies turning into musicals, it almost happens more often than musicals turning into movies. Or if it doesn't, there must be a lot of really bad musical movies out there that are adapted from a play or a musical. Just because, you know, I'm trying to think of one and just off the cuff, I can't really think of a show per se. I, immediately I thought of Across the Universe which I personally love that. It's based on all the uh, music of the Beatles. Um, I'm trying to think of another one. I just can't. <laughs> I know nothing's really cropping into my head that started as, I'm sure there are. I'm just not, you know, I'm not remembering any at the moment. That's but, not a good sign. That's, you see, we can think of eight Broadway shows immediately that are, uh, you know, I'm sure people listening to this that might be a theater junkie or something might sit there and go, there's like 15 off the top of my head. But I got nothing. I straight up think of Lion King. I think of Aladdin. I think of all those that were just, you know, Disney movies. I mean, Lion King, too, is an adaption of something else. What, what was an adaption of? It's not. Well, there's. So it, everyone says that it's an adaptation of Hamlet. However, there's a, though that's like a myth story there's no qualifying evidence right there's a lot of interviews there are people that were on the creative team behind it are like it's not we can see the similarities but it's not there's also a rumor that it was stolen from i think it was a japanese cartoon um that I story remember that it was like kimba or something and it was yeah, about something. a lion or a mountain lion named kimba or something silly like that it was so close to simba yeah i remember that and it was like a white animal cub of some sort who knows man i mean at this point well, i mean that's that's one of the exact reasons why you could say that like broadway musicals movies turned into musicals uh tend to be much better adaptations than musicals turned into movies. You look at what Julie Taymor did with The Lion King with the costumes and the puppetry and all of that stuff and how incredibly immersive it is. And even though it's not like an actual lion on stage, you know, the movement and the dance and all of that, you still get completely lost in it. But then when you turn a, a musical like Les Mis where, you know, once you see the barricade turn, on that big turntable in front of you in the theater that's like a magical moment that you can't explain and then you see it in cgi on a big like it just it loses the magic of it and i i think that goes back to something that you and i have talked about before of how like cg too much cgi is not a good thing <laughs> you know it ruins the magic of it like one of the most impactful things about 
Jurassic Park, for example, is the fact that they used actual animatronic dinosaurs, so it looked so real. They and, used that for a lot. Uh, there were some parts, of course, where they have like wide shots of a T-Rex, and they couldn't make an animatronic T-Rex. They probably couldn't even do that today. Um, maybe they could, but I'm not going to say they couldn't be wrong. Well, to, well, to <laughs> move the way they needed it to move, they could make an animatronic T-Rex that that's big. It's just not going to run and chase and do all that stuff. Probably. Exactly. Yeah. Because so, it should be said that they did do that. They built an animatronic T-Rex, at least a head. I don't remember if it was the whole body or anything, but this way it could like bump up against the car. I just did it. I just bumped my head against nothing. Um, it, they, they, for a lot of the shots that were CGI, those shots are extremely impressive too, because when it's a completely CGI T-Rex, um, if you watch, there's a YouTube account, yeah. Corridor Crew. If you look them up, they do reaction videos to different special effects things. I'm going to send you a couple because they're fun as hell. Uh, okay. They also do stunt person uh, reactions. So they bring in a stunt person. They brought in the guy that does all the stunt stuff for Black Panther. And uh, they sit down with them and they watch just different stunts or they watch different CGI effects. And then they comment on it and they call stuff out. And all of them, too, are CGI effect artists. So they can say all the technical things that my brain just goes that doesn't look right but they can say why it doesn't look right and it makes me think i know what i'm talking about so i love those videos um but yeah they talked about jurassic park at one point and the reason it's done really well and the reason it looks really nice is because they filmed it at night and they filmed it when it was raining so it's very easy to mimic a wet texture as opposed to a dry texture it's much easier to mask a bunch of cgi issues under darkness because it's nighttime so they really planned all those things perfectly because if you watch some movies today come out and they have such bad cgi and it's like well, if they could do it right way back in the early 90s when they did jurassic park how can they still be so bad at it and a great portion of it is giving the video effects artists the time is big the biggest killer 100 percent. they talk about it all the time where they say if they're not given enough time to do something, it's going to look rushed. Yeah. And, I Absolutely. mean, movies have deadlines, movies have budgets, people have to stick to those things, but it compromises your film uh, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's an important part of it. And I think uh, visual effects artists, stunt people as well, they are overlooked sometimes in the film industry. Well, I mean, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later um, when we get into our current events. But I was reading the article that you sent me about the Academy Awards, and there's still no category for stunt uh, performing. And I think that's, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, I think they, they have a category for best visual effects. Yes. Um, but there's so many sub-genres within visual effects that it's crazy. There, there's, I don't think there's, an, uh, there's an, a distinction between practical effects I think that's just considered like makeup and effects. Um, but you know, when you have something like Jurassic Park, sometimes they create a category when there's enough films to compete against one another. Uh, so when you have like four or five different movies that all did a lot of practical effects, it's easy to say, let's put these against each other and give them an Oscar. But when you only have one movie that came out that year, which is gonna be a problem this year because there's only so many movies that are coming out, when you yeah. only have one movie that excels in one great way, uh, like say, just for example, sake, practical effects. 
if there's one movie that comes out all year that has really great practical effects and nobody else does, does it make sense to have that Oscars category and just give them a win because nobody else was there to compete? Um, win by default, you know, but uh, another thing I wanted to talk about too, circle back a little bit, is all film is an adaptation, really, when you think about it, because nobody, and I, I guess act, technically, Jillian, uh, we're going to talk about her improv show that they filmed, uh, where they just plop the camera down and they just go. Yeah. Um, I guess that's the only thing I can think of where someone doesn't put something on paper and then adapt it to film. Um, you know, sometimes movies are adapted from comic books, movies are adapted from books, uh, plays and musicals are adapted from films. Everything is an adaptation unless it's completely improv in a moment. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I mean, if you write a screenplay, that that is not an adaptation. That's That's a film. Right. But there's always a director that comes in and says how they visualize that. So if, if you get Steven Spielberg and you get Christopher Nolan and they read the same script and they both make the same movie, they're going to have two completely different movies. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an adaptation. I don't know. That's what, see, I, I might fight you on that one. I might fight you on that one because they're both, basically the job of the director at least mm -hmm. in my eyes, is to work with the actors and work with the other filmmakers and camera people, technical people. He's basically the middleman for everybody on set to come and say, this is what we want to contribute to this adaptation of this thing that's written. Because, um, I mean, the director might write it also, but then they're adapting to film. Because there's, no, there, there's hardly ever a situation where a director or a writer or someone writes something and they make exactly that. There's no, there's always a studio steps in or the director changes something and they say, visually, this would make sense if we did it different. And then they change it slightly. Well, and that's right. nothing. Ad well, adaptation. I, and I, I can understand that point of view, but like what, going back to your example of like, if you take one script and Christopher Nolan takes it and Steven Spielberg takes it and they make two completely different things, plays do that all the time. They're always, um, but they don't call it an adaptation. They'll call it like a revival or something on Broadway. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's an adaptation. Um, it's just a revival. They're doing the same script. They're not adapting it to fit anything else. See, adaptation to me means you're adapting that story to fit a different medium or a different way that you're going to tell it if you're not telling it for the initial way that it was created. You're creating a script for the for film. Then if you, or like for example, what Jill's doing with one of her projects, she's adapting her solo show to be a series. That, that is an adaptation. For sure, I agree to that too. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends on your perspective of what an adaptation is uh, for people. I mean, if you're writing something for a certain medium, you know, it's part of the process, whether it's an adaptation or not, technically. Uh, but that's just how I thought of it. I always think of it as, because whenever you're approaching a project, too, that maybe you didn't have involvement from the beginning, and maybe that's a big contributing factor. When a writer comes to you, like I have a writer friend who approached me about shooting a film for him, 
and I read his script and I said, well, you don't have the budget for half of this shit. So we're going to have to adapt. And then the word adaptation came to be. And I was, that's that, I think that's when it clicked. And this was like last year where I had almost not an epiphany. It's such a strong word to have an epiphany, but it was like, huh, all films are adaptations. And that's where it sit with me after that. Uh, but that's me, you know, that's just me. Um, what the hell were we talking about? Uh, we, got, we got so far from talking about movies and musicals and then right. getting into all the way from there to here. And redos and all that stuff. Uh, that was a fun tangent though. Yeah. Uh, let's get into our day player. She brought a clip along. It is her reel, I believe. Victoria, you want to take it? Yeah, so Jill is sharing with us her reel so we can get kind of a taste for what she does as an actor, but Jill is so much more than that. She's a writer, she's a creator, she's a musician. Um, so let's take a look at it, and when we come back, we'll bring her on and we'll talk to her. Sounds good. <laughs> Subscribe! <laughs> that was my friend. Um, oh? Her dog swallowed a rock. Oh my God. So I gotta go make sure it get comes a new out, dog? you know. Maybe, I don't know, yeah. I gotta run though. I got you. You have to tell me everything about it. Like you have to tell me yeah. where it happened, how yeah. it happened, I, when I'm it happened. I'm just gonna let you guys talk about this. So. No, 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 don't go. It's fine, I don't, I don't wanna get in the middle of like a friends with benefit sort of oh, no, thing. Oh no, 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 it's not friends with benefits. I'm not really sure why she's coming, um, but we're excited to have some new <clears throat> new ideas here at the Sagamore. Um, I, just, I just don't think there's a lot for her to do. You know, there's not a lot <laughs> wrong. He <laughs> was just the guy. He had a gun. He had a gun, and he reached for it. Right? Detectives get a description of the suspect from their witness, Christine Porter. The cleaning lady described the assailant as a young white male. How tall? Uh, like maybe five nine. Twenty to twenty-five years old, 150, 170 pounds. If you saw him, would you recognize him? Yes. Christine agrees to work with police and heads to the station. One star. Oh, he, uh, he liked my smile. Okay, so we have with us Jillian Vitko, an actor, a writer, a musician, an all-around wonderful human being. Hi, Jill. Hi, how are you? Oh, we're doing okay. Living that quarantine dream, you know. Yep, mm, what a dream. <laughs> So, uh, Jill, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started acting, what pulled you into TV film world, anything like that. Give us a little background about yourself. Sure. Um, so I went to University of Pittsburgh for theater, um, and I hung around Pittsburgh after I graduated, because when you're in college, you just do college stuff. So I was like, oh, let's see what's in the world, you know, and uh, Pittsburgh had some great, um, they have some great theater companies and they actually, even more so now, uh, film a lot of stuff there. So, you know, I did a bunch of shows. I did my first web series there, uh, which was super fun, but you know, it just got a little old. So then I came to the big city, uh, six years ago and yeah, I've just kind of been 
doing whatever I can. Um, so I do a little, you know, I still do theater, I do film, TV, comedy, drama, whatever, because I love it all, you know? So um, yeah, that's kind of a little bio about me. <laughs> well, do, you have a, do you have a favorite between theater, film, TV, anything like that? I ask myself that a lot, to be honest. I do. I mean, I do love TV, I think, more than anything. I, I would prefer to watch it. I would prefer to do it. I like that you're investing in characters over time. Um, like when I've done series that I get to be the same person in different um, circumstances, it's really interesting. So I, I would say that, yes, that's my favorite, but it's like not super higher than the rest. You know, like I do love, like when I don't do theater for a while I miss it so it's it's hard to pick one but if I had to I would say tv do you fluctuate where you're like I've done tv for like a year now I'm sick of it and I want to do a little theater a little bit I mean that'd be great to be doing <laughs> so much tv that I'm sick of it. uh no no but I I think it's more like when because I think I do more film I don't know I think I do a little more film maybe than theater now so when I don't do, like I do a lot of comedy theater. So like when I'm not doing like a show show, I do sometimes miss that. So I think that's more the thing that I um, will realize. I'm like, oh, I haven't like memorized a, you know, Tennessee Williams script lately. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's fun and it's different than filming and just, you know, memorizing contemporary stuff for like chunks at a time. You know what I mean? Like knowing a whole show is yeah. fun. I think. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with you. Sometimes yeah. it's, you know, it's nice to kind of have that whole journey in one little package. Yeah. Mm -hmm. of, you know, okay, I get a little bit here. Next week, I get a little bit more. Right. Right. And it's, yeah, it's harder for me, I think, to do, like, when I've done shows, like, every, like, six days a week for weeks at a time. Like, that's difficult. Um, I think for anyone, but like for me, I like, you know, you have to find ways to reinvent it. So I kind of like that challenge, but I think that's why I prefer film too. Cause it's, I think it's more fun for me. You know, I don't have to find like new ways to make it different and keep it fresh. <laughs> yeah. Which I mean, which is, you know, I like doing that. It's just, if I had to pick one to do forever, <laughs> it would be. We're forcing you to make a choice right now. Right, right. <laughs> Fine, being podcast, you have to pick one. Ah, this is so uh, much pressure. <laughs> I, I personally love working on films because it's something that you can kind of close the book on. You can be, yes. uh, you know, open curtain, closed curtain. Cool, I worked for a month straight on this film. Mm -hmm. Job is done. The film will either be really bad or really good. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't change after that. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes there's reshoots and stuff, but with a t with a series or something like a web series or a TV show, you can adapt and your character can evolve and change. And you might have started playing this uh, shy young woman, and now you're this strong, confident woman by the end of it. Mm -hmm. I just thought of House of Cards, just because of. I mean, she's always a strong woman, but then she was president. Uh, yeah. But then you know. Um, and then the same, I guess, can be said for theater, because if you keep playing the same role over and over again, I don't know, I, I, does it become, I, I have never acted in theater, besides mm -hmm. like fifth grade play where I was a tree. So I didn't evolve my character, I was just a tree. Um, did, uh, do you guys ever have that situation where there was a role you were playing in theater and you keep doing it? Does it get repetitive or do you kind of evolve with it? Do you try to 
change the character a little? What do you guys do? Posing the question for both of you. Sure, yeah. Um, I don't, th I mean, you can't really like change it outwardly. I mean, it definitely changes internally, like the new things you discover, but like you still have to do what you're supposed to be doing, like from what the writer or director wants. So it is interesting to see how like you hear things differently, you know, especially if you have like a monologue and it like feels different depending <clears throat> on like when you're doing it. So that, that is interesting because it's fun to discover for yourself, but like the goal is to not, like each audience should get the same like whatever the goal is of that character, like that should be what they get every time, you know? For sure, yeah. I think there's also different circumstances and situations where like, for example, Jill, I, I know Jill because she is an actor in my play and she's been an actor in my play since the very first reading all the way up till now and continuing. So she's played that same character and she's grown that character through the whole yeah. thing. I think it's a little different because we've been developing the script. Yeah. So. Yeah, but that that has been interesting because it's like different iterations that like because the, the character has grown a lot too. Like the first draft was only in like two scenes or whatever, and now in different scenes you get more of who she is. So yeah, I mean I've discovered more about her, which has been nice. So that like developing a character is fun because you are like changing it and being like, well, wait, this doesn't make sense. So like, how do you like justify whatever they're doing? And that's fun. For sure. Now, Jill, you're also a musician. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how long how long have you been doing that? What's what started you on your musical path? Um, I I guess I was in high school, um, and I like found an old guitar <laughs> in my house and had to restring it because I'm a lefty. <laughs> So I like restrung it and just, I, I kind of taught myself, I mean, I'm not, I guess I'm a musician, but I'm not like, you know, I just taught myself how to play guitar, piano, and um, ukulele. And I just wrote stuff, you know, over the years. So then last year I put it all together into a musical because I had all this stuff that shouldn't just be sitting there, in my opinion. I was like, what is it doing? Just, you know, sitting there. So yeah, I just um, literally picked it up one day. <laughs> just, I, I think the first day that I picked up the guitar, I like wrote a song. Like, it's just, that's why I wanted to play music. Like, it was like, I want to create through this thing now, you know? It wasn't a great song, but it was a song, you know? <laughs> well, I think everyone's first scene uh, that they wrote, first uh, song that they wrote, first thing that they shot on a camera is probably not. Yeah. But right. I've always okay. been amazed. You got to do that. <laughs> oh, really? Every, the first thing I shot was a masterpiece. It was incredible. Uh, that is untrue. That's very cool. Um, I still cringe when I go back and I look at some of the stuff that I filmed in like college and that yeah. uh, when I got out of high school. Um, I, I, I think honestly, I was like better in high school and then college, I just got worse. And then after that, I got a lot better. I was like, oh, okay, now this is, now I'm realizing these things are bad. Let me do that. <laughs> right. Um, you do a weekly show. Is that right? You do I a do. musical comedy show. What, tell us about that. Yeah, it's called On the Spot, and it's a combination of improv comedy and cabaret. So we have like four or five singers who sing two songs each. So it's like 10 songs throughout the night, and then after each song, the actors improvise a scene so that we're making a, a narrative 
comedy and the actors can also improvise musical numbers as well. So you get kind of like this weird musical that's partially written songs, partially improvised songs, and hopefully it all wraps up at the end. And it's like seeing a brand new musical every Monday. It's super fun. Um, but now we're doing, you know, since we're not performing on stage, we're doing um, like little scenes um, every, like every couple days we're putting them out and then we're doing a live virtual show next Monday. So you should very check cool. that out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Virtual show. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, are you, so you're right now you're doing stuff. Are you doing things via zoom or are you like doing just like pre-recorded and then putting it on YouTube or. Yeah. So we're, I mean, we're recording the scene, we're pre-recording the scenes and then we put them up. We like, they, uh, whatever the word is, post them. Um, I think it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but yeah, on Monday we're doing a live, I think it's on Zoom, and then it'll be streamed to YouTube. So it's a live show with, um, there's a choir that's gonna do all the music. So it should be fun. Very wow. cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That'd huh? be cool. So Jill, you also, you have a one more show mm -hmm. that, that you do that I was yes. very lucky to get to direct. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but tell us a little bit about it and where you where you got the idea to start it, where it's been so far, and what you're planning on doing with it. So, like I said before, I had all of this music, and I wanted to do something with it. So I knew for a while that I wanted to write a musical, um, like acoustic musical, because all my stuff, most of my stuff is on guitar. So I kind of wanted to be like a alternative musical. Um, but it's really hard to start with a bunch of music and put it into a story. So I struggled for a long time trying to figure out how to put these all together. And then I was like, oh, well, why don't I just use the real things that inspired them, you know, throughout my life. So I, that was like a breakthrough. And I kind of found the story and then like the spin on it was that it was about synesthesia which is, you should Google because it's complicated, but I mean, you know what it is, but yeah, I, <laughs> for those out there listening, um, it's basically your senses are blended. So you might see a letter and, and like see a color at the same time or hear a sound and, and feel a color. Um, it's very color oriented, but mine is with people. Um, that's the strongest one. So that kind of was like the through line of the show. And once I realized that it kind of like took off and then I just wrote it and finished it and I submitted it to festivals. So I went to Edinburgh last year and um, New York theater festival, which was great and fun. And it was, you know, it was a learning experience, but I, instead of trying to keep performing it right now, well, not right now, cause I can't <laughs> do that anyway. Um, I want to turn it into like a TV series and I think that especially because it's about synesthesia, it's a better medium to like kind of bring the viewer in to like what I'm seeing um, and sort of, I, I just, I don't know, I just can really like imagine it um, as a series. So I've been writing that and I'm really excited about that and you know, it's kind of different because it's a musical series, which are great. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's probably the, the biggest one. Um, 
and yeah, so it's, it's going, you know, and I hope that once we're out in the world, it'll, you know, get its feet. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with a lot, I mean, we keep saying this in every podcast we record, everybody has this project that they're working on, mm-hmm. coronavirus, COVID, you know, punched it in the face, and it's yeah. on hold right now. Yeah. Uh, but just for clarification's sake, because I didn't know what it was, uh, yeah. synes- how, do you, how do you say it? Synesthesia? Yeah, synesthesia. Mm-hmm. It's a condition in which one sense, for example, hearing, is simultaneously perceived as if by one or more additional senses, such as sight. Um, mm-hmm. I just Googled that. Yeah, it's, now I know. it's not a thing that a lot of people know about, and I didn't know I had it until a few years ago when someone was like, oh, you have synesthesia from what I was like describing. So it's been, I mean, that in itself was like a huge thing because I didn't know I had this my whole life. So it's been partially like researching it at the same time because I do things or think things I don't realize are weird, you know? So that's been interesting too. Um, I'm really interested in what it's like trying to adapt a project that you already have for a different medium. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you finding that? I think that, I think I told you my first draft of the show was like, it was like three hours long. Like it was nuts. So for me, it's been nice to be able to like open up those areas where I can, where I wanted to put more information in. And it's also nice to have other characters in the show or in the series, because in the show it was just me talking. Um, So I've actually found it like kind of freeing because I felt like, especially with the festivals I was submitting to, it had to be under 45 minutes. So I had to like cut a lot of stuff. And so it's nice to be able to like open it up. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's different. You know what I mean? It's like, it's becoming something else while still staying the same thing, but I like that I can do so much more with it, you know? Yeah. So it's fun. Yeah. How far are you in the, in the changeover process? Do you have like a couple episodes written? Do you have like, where are you at? So I have pretty much the first season written, which is eight episodes. Um, but I have been going back in the quarantine and editing it. So it's sort of, I don't, I have to like go back through and see like what makes sense and what doesn't. Um, and then I also like, had have the outline in my head for season two so I'm like getting ahead of myself <laughs> so I'm trying to like just focus on getting season one done but um yeah I'm just kind of figuring out how long I want to make them and like what to include and what to add and all that stuff so now I'm just kind of yeah going back and like going over it to look for all that stuff well I don't think it's a, a necessarily a, a bad thing or you're getting too far ahead of yourself with season two because you know mm. if, if you are gonna approach other people or production companies or whatever to try and and, and develop it they're going to want to know where is this going so I, right. I, mean, I think that's it's a smart thing to do yes. uh, but that's, you're welcome but it's a huge huge undertaking but that's awesome I, I think I find that completely fascinating of taking a project that you already have and flipping it to like 180 degrees to something completely different and trying to keep the core of it the same way yeah. Um, well, I do have to say that, um, watch, so have you guys watched Fleabag? Not yet. You gotta. Quarantine. You got to. You got to. It's so good. But, so I love Fleabag and um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge um, did Edinburgh uh, like five years ago or something with 
Fleabag, the solo show. So I got to see her perform that, not live, but they had a showing at um, somewhere in New York at a theater. So that was also helpful because yeah, it's weird like taking a solo show and like turning it into a series, but she literally did that. And so watching her show, especially after I saw what the series was, was like comforting in a way. Cause I'm like, oh, like someone else did this and it was fine. I mean, she's a genius, but like it was, you know, still like nice to see like, oh, this is, I think I told you when I saw it, I was like, oh, like I, like we have similar, like we both did a solo show. You know what I mean? Like it was just her like telling her story and then it became this amazing series. So um, yeah, it was really nice to, to be able to see like where it began and where it ended. Um, so it kind of gave me like new inspiration for mine. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about the unarmed man on Amazon Prime. What's that all about? Yeah. So that's a great uh, film. It just came out like a week or two ago. Um, we shot in DC and it's a great, you know, it's, it's very relevant um, to all the police brutality that we always see in the news. And it, it's sort of like the gray area of the situation of what happened, because it, it focuses a lot on like the interview with the cop and him describing why he shot this person. Um, so I play the cop's uh, fiance or wife, one of those. Um, and yeah, I mean, you should watch it. It's, it's streaming, I think it's free with Prime. Um, I don't wanna give too much away, but it's very, it's suspenseful. The whole, the whole time you're kind of like, who's right, who's wrong, Who, you know, because in the news, you're like, you're very frustrated, right, by all this stuff that you see, and, and um, it's just really interesting to see this take on it um, in the film, so. Very cool. Yeah, I could do a whole podcast on how much I hate all news networks recently. Yeah. Just all their coverage is like, people are dying, here's a puppy playing with a ball and they do a right. piece or something right it's, yeah exactly and the film actually starts out with a lot of the news coverage and like clips from uh, you know the big stories that we've all heard about so it, like right away you're like incensed you're just you know what i mean you're just like on the edge of your seat the whole time so yeah it's good Very cool um let's talk too about uh citizens of new york want to hear about that comedy series yes so um that is my episode came out before quarantine and it's an improvised comedy series. So um, Sammy Hutchinson created the whole thing. And last year he created uh, an episode a week for the whole year. And he just got improvisers together and like gave kind of a rough idea of what he wanted or what, like it was very collaborative. And then we just shot <laughs> some weird stuff and he edited it so that it was funny. <laughs> so and it's, it's all improv? It is, yeah, it's all improvised. And um, yeah, it was super fun to work with a bunch of different improvisers and I love making stuff up and it's nice to do it on film. And um, it was really great and it's really funny. So you should also check that out because it's a good series. Um, cool. But I think good. he's still releasing episodes, yeah. Nice, I was an uh, episode a week too is very, that's an accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, he's just you like, you know, yeah. why not? Like, I know all these funny people, let's just do it. So it was, it was great. I mean, he was, yeah, hustling. Awesome. Yeah. So do they give you any parameters for the episode and then you just kind of take it from there or how does that work? Yeah, so he, um, 
<clears throat> excuse me, he um, emails you and he, he asks if you have any like character ideas or anything you want to do or put in the episode, like he'll play to people's strengths, you know? But if not, he'll kind of give you, yeah, just like, oh, this person, like the episode I did, I was like a social media star who was like up for an award. And she had this roommate who was jealous of, of that because she was also trying to be a social media star. So that's kind of all we had. And then, yeah, we just improvised and what came out of it came out of it. And we, we filmed maybe like a few hours and then the episodes, you know, like 10 minutes. So he just kind of lets us run free. And then when he's editing, I think whatever he finds, he, he puts together that makes sense, you know, because we just kind of, yeah, just live in the moment <laughs> and find the weirdness in whatever the situation is. So it was super fun. Very cool. Uh, yeah. Something similar I just saw on Netflix was Ben Schwartz and Thomas Middleditch. Mm -hmm. uh, they just came out with an improv show. I don't even know how many episodes it is, but it's just they get up on stage and they talk to an audience member and they pick them out and then they just go for an hour improv on whatever those people say. So one of them was yeah. like, I'm getting married or I know someone getting married and they just ha they did a whole wedding. They pretended to be all the different characters and those guys are hysterical. Uh, yeah. so, I mean, improv is fun. It's fun to watch. It is. I love it. Because <laughs> you just you just get to like not be in your head and just go <clears throat> for it, you know? It's great. Especially in musical improv, which is my favorite. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. I think, I think especially too, uh, sometimes you watch like SNL and there's these planned skits and the actors break a little. Yeah. Those are the funniest moments to me because it's almost like, haha, they, I, I, they, they broke, it's funny. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, improv that happens so much more because it's so in the moment that sometimes I, I know. Like, wait, hold on, what what character <laughs> are you playing right now? Because I don't understand. Right. Uh, so it's kind of fun to, even as an audience member, to just be in on it. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I never want to break, but at the same time I love when like I'm just like almost going to because like you're just so like in the moment and I love when you're finding. <laughs> Like how, in, like maybe it's insane or maybe it's hilarious, whatever's happening. Um, it's just so fun to like be on stage and be like, what are we doing right now? You know, <laughs> like it's, it's great. You know, I would suggest it to anyone, you know, and Brav is, uh, yeah, it's just like, you're not, you can't be thinking about anything else while you're doing it. So it's nice. Right. Well, I'm glad we're doing this podcast because otherwise I'd be going crazy and just improving to myself. <laughs> And Isn't life just improv, right? Yeah, just doing comedy <laughs> bits by myself. Um, well, you, we, we always ask everybody, everyday player that comes on the show, we ask them for a movie suggestion. And weirdly enough, uh, Victoria, you've never seen it either. Uh, we were suggested by you mm -hmm. and Harry Met Sally from 1989. Yep. <laughs> uh, why did you, well, actually you came and you said, I, I choose Rocky, but... Mm -hmm. We all we just filmed an episode where someone picked Rocky, and we've only filmed a few episodes. So I said, right. maybe go with favorite. Yeah, what's the sure, next sure. one? And then you said when Harry met Sally, uh, and I just watched it, just finished it before we started filming the podcast, and it was great. Uh, mm -hmm. It came out in 1989. Mm -hmm. Well, why'd you pick it? Why'd why'd you pick that movie? I mean, that's always been one of my favorite movies. Is I don't remember the first time I saw it, but like I remember all through college, I would watch it when I was sick. Or like I don't have a lot of movies that I like to watch a lot, aside from Rocky or um, a few others. But 
I don't, it's just, it's such a good movie. And, you know, the actors are so good. Carrie Fisher's in, it's just like such a good, funny rom-com, but it's like, you know, it's witty and, and I love old movies, you know, um, I'm a big fan. So yeah, it's just kind of a comfort movie, but it's also, I think, really well done. Yeah, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm not a big romantic comedy guy. Yeah. But, uh, I liked it. It was fun. Billy yeah. Crystal, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how could you lose? Right. <laughs> good. Uh, well, Jillian, thank you for coming on the podcast, talking about stuff you're working on, things you're doing. Yeah. Uh, hopefully COVID blows over and all these projects that we have on hold or that we're adapting because we can't mm-hmm. do it in, in person or in real life. I feel like real life is just outside this window and it's yeah. so close. Yeah. Just beyond our reach. Right. I've been singing Tangled a lot, right? right. You guys singing that song where she's like, <laughs> yeah. when will my life? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to drop all your links. Everybody can check right. out all the things that you're working on, all the projects that you're involved in and in acting and producing and putting together. Uh, yeah. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was super fun. Love yeah. it. Victoria, any parting words? I, I love you. I think you're a fantastic. I love you. <laughs> um, you're an inspiring human being. I love all the work that you do. Um, and just thank you for sharing everything with us today. Thank you. And, th- and I should say, uh, you know, Victoria was a huge inspiration in my writing my own show. She wrote Scar Tissue. I did this show for, you know, years before, a couple, a year or two. And I'm, you know, watching her put it all out there so that I, yeah, come on. You're... <laughs> <laughs> you're amazing <laughs> casual hair flip I'm only gonna bring people on the show who inflate my ego that's right I'm yeah they come on the show and they don't give you compliments and they don't just shower you and Victoria's Victor like we're not airing it no that episode's not coming out yeah, we have to cutting room floor <laughs> uh well thank you Jillian and you. uh we'll see you next time we'll see you another time yeah bye All right. Well, thank you to Jill for coming on and sharing with us all of the projects and all of the things that she's doing. She's a wonderfully crazy, ambitious lady. Yeah, she's doing quite a bit. Uh, She's definitely sticking into the musical and comedy and filmmaking genre. She does a lot of theater stuff as well. Obviously, all this stuff is on hold for COVID, but she's still working on some stuff to do in the meantime and then has plans to make things happen once the world keeps spinning. Uh, Her movie suggestion is When Harry Met Sally. It is an American romantic comedy from 1989, written by Nora Ephron and directed by Rob Reiner. Uh, It stars Billy Crystal as Harry, and it stars Meg Ryan as Sally. Uh, Victoria, we both watched this movie. I watched it literally an hour and a half ago, two hours ago. (laughs) You watched it last night, so it's fresh in both of our minds. Uh, First impression, what did you think? Uh, I... I was delightfully surprised by it. I was afraid that it was going to be dated and I was really nervous that it was just going to be, you know, another romantic comedy. And while I, you know, I have soft spot for them, everything, when they opened up and, you know, you see the younger versions of them and I don't like the younger versions of either of those characters. Um, and then all the women are talking about getting married before it's too late and the clock is ticking. And I'm like, uh, okay. line where, where uh, Sally, I think said, I'm going to be 40. And he's like in eight years. And she's like, yeah, it's around the corner. Like it's coming yeah. up. I was like, 
really though. Uh, <laughs> but you know, um, it, it, it is a testament to the movie to say that a lot of that stuff that happened in it is, stands up to this day. Um, a lot of the things, the questions that they posed, like can a guy and a girl be friends and not sleep together? Mm-hmm. No, that is a whole concept. They have 18 different concepts that they do, do in that movie. I would vote to say it's true. They can be friends um, because we're friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mean, for- when Harry met Sally, we beat the system. <laughs> but I think, I think that for a film, obviously, it's boring to just, if if they made a film about our friendship, it would be like, okay, we're going to play video games and eat sushi. Like, nothing much has yeah. happened. That's pretty so, much it. It sounds like a great friendship to me, but maybe it's I love it, but it's probably not that much fun to watch. <laughs> so people shouldn't watch this podcast is what you're saying, because that's what I plan to talk about for the rest, for the next two hours is sushi and video games. <laughs> Nothing to do with films. Uh, But no. Uh, Columbia Pictures released When Harry Met Sally in select cities, letting the word of mouth generate interest before it eventually gradually expanded distribution. Uh, The film grossed $92.8 million in North America. Uh, Nor Efron received the British Academy Film Award, an Oscar nomination, and the Writers Guild of America Award nomination for her screenplay. Uh, the budget for the film was $16 million, and it brought in almost $93 million. That's quite a turnover. That's good. Yeah. Uh, and it came out July 21st, 1989, 96 minutes long. It's a fun movie. I enjoyed it. I had a fun time with it. I mean, the only thing I knew about it was that it was a romantic comedy, and there's that one scene with Meg Ryan in the diner, and that's all I knew about it. Um, but, it, you know, I had a fun time the whole way through. Billy Crystal is fun. And he's quirky and weird, and it's fun to watch him just do anything. Um, One of the things I loved about the film is it's essentially just the two of them talking for most of the film. Yeah, they don't even get together until they they kind of hint at it, and they're building it up and building it up and building it up. But it's not even until like 80% of the movie is over where they finally get together. And then Mm -hmm. it ruins their friendship. Uh, and of course he has to run. He wasn't raining, but if I felt like he was going to be running through the rain, has to get to the train station or airport. It was very cliche after that point, but they also hit you back with the quirkiness right after. So they, yeah. they come in with the cheesiness and then they're like, but remember these are real people and real characters. And I really got that vibe that they were real people down to earth, normal people. Um, they played, what, what did they play? Uh, the board game they played, not a board game, Pictionary. They played Pictionary. Pictionary. Yeah. Um, and everybody can, I think, relate to playing Pictionary once and the person draws something and it's just not at all what people are talking about. All um, I could think of during that was the Family Guy clip when Stewie's playing uh, Pictionary with the people that moved into their house and the guy keeps going, it's a jackal, jackal, it's a jackal, jackal. <laughs> God, it's not a jackal. If it's not a th- jackal the first time, it's not a jackal the 50th time. Yeah. I mean, it, there's so much about this movie that's relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many things in... It kind of also, it, it set a lot of standards in terms of what how people think in relationships. I'm sure a lot of people watch this movie and think, I can't have a guy friend or a girlfriend, or I guess that's how guys think, or that's how girls think, or whatever. Um, 
my inner waiter was just pissed at Meg Ryan's as at Sally. Every time she went to a restaurant and ordered anything, my inner waiter was like, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I think pretty much anyone in the food industry at that point was like, this, this she's a nightmare customer. Right. Like, you know, Billy Crystal comes in and says, I'll take the number three, and that's it. Mm-hmm. That's the dream customer. Yep. They're friendly, and they say what exactly what they want, and they're done. Not, mm-hmm. I want a side salad with oil and vinegar, but mm-hmm. also I want this baked potato, but the butter on the side. And also this, and also this. I mean, you can get what you want, but it just showed how different the characters were. I think that was an easy way to show how, how one of them is very laid back, down to earth. The other one is very... I don't know the word for it without being horrible and rude. Uh, he called her uptight in the movie. He did. He uptight. called her you know, high maintenance. I think is he. High maintenance. And her response yeah. to that was, "I know what I want," and clearly she didn't because they were in love with each other. I think after twenty minutes, mm-hmm. but didn't realize it. Probably they didn't really like each other. But there was that connection. I, I noticed a connection between them from the first moment. So, and I don't watch romantic comedies ever. <laughs> well, I think, I remember watching the opening credits and just seeing all the names pop up of the people involved in this. In this, And I kept going, wait, Carrie Fisher's in this? Wait, Rob Reiner directed this? Wait a minute, Nora Ephron wrote this? Like, I literally yeah. knew nothing about this film beyond the fact that there was the fake orgasm scene in Katz's Deli and it had Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal. Um, and whatever references in, you know, popular culture now to it that people make. But now, now I'll understand I, those references because I didn't understand them before. But uh, I, I, I really, I think it's just such a well put together film from the way they shot it with those little confessional moments with the couples all throughout it, I think that was brilliant um, to see that everyone, it's not a linear path to how people get together and how their lives, you know, it's not typical fairy book, you meet in college, you get married, you settle down, you pop out a few kids and they start the cycle over again. Um, <laughs> Make it sound so dreary. That's like someone's life that's like wonderful and amazing and they met their I'm, high school sweetheart and they have a perfect life together. That, that's great too. Not to put those people down. <laughs> no, you, you did a good job. Good for you. That's not for everybody. <laughs> but, I, and then listening to the music that they chose and the style that they chose, I think it's just, you know, it, it kept it from being completely, I guess what we think of as cheesy now in, you know, romantic comedies with these, this dramatic music and soundtrack and whatever you might think a Nicholas Sparks movie would have. Um, I think it, it made it a little more realistic and attainable <clears throat> to a regular audience, you know? Yeah, for sure. Because everybody can relate to a relationship that they weren't expecting. Or maybe they met a person, didn't like them at first, and then got to know them a lot better over time. And yeah. then it changed. And then all of a sudden, one day you wake up and you're like infatuated with that person. Yeah. So, I mean, I liked the movie. I think it was great. Um, it was a fun time watching it. I mean, it's, it's, I liked that it took time, it took place over the course of like, it had to be like 10 years or so, right? Oh, I think they said 12 by the end of it is 12 years. Right. And it shows then at first they meet 
on this weird drive. I, I've never been in a situation where someone's meeting me for the first time and we're going on a very long 18-hour car ride together. But mm-hmm. I guess the 80s were different, uh, 89, 90. Well, they, it was a one degree of separation between the two of them. So not, I guess. not crazy. And they both forgot about that person <laughs> immediately after that. I felt bad for her. Like, right. Really cool at the beginning, is like making out with her by the car and being like, I love you. I love you. I love you. And then six I'm hours. On the road. Like, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, six hours down, down the road trip, he's trying to hit on Meg Ryan. So, like, but I think, you know, it, it definitely set the standard for romantic comedies from then on out, uh, from that point. Uh, and you can see how many romantic comedies actually do take inspiration from, from these, from that film in particular. I think it, was it one of the first movies that kind of defied all the cliches? Cause I don't know how the, or what, was it really one of the first romantic comedies? Cause I don't know too many, I personally am ignorant to the romantic comedy genre. So I don't know how many before when Harry met Sally there were. I mean, there there are a ton. It just it's changes in how the story was told. Um, you know, you can go all the way back to you know the first the first few movies in black and white. Um, I mean, the, one of the movies that uh, Phil Capadora, the founder of the AFC, suggested. Um, as one of his favorite movies, bringing up baby from the thirties is a romantic comedy about the two of them getting together. And that was Carrie Grant and Catherine Hepburn. So there are a ton. I think it's just in, in, I think Harry met Sally is probably one of the defining romantic comedies that really brought it into a more modern telling. And, and that set the standard for a lot of romantic comedies that ended up following from then on out. Very cool. I mean, yeah, I still have not watched Bringing Up Baby with Cary Grant from 1934 or 37 or whatever year it came out. Yeah, uh, at some point, you're going to have to watch a classic black and white film. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll watch Citizen Kane. I'll watch Casablanca. I'll watch any of the classics, you know. Um, I have seen Citizen Kane. I like Citizen Kane. That's supposed to be, according to all my film professors in college, that was the amazing peak of of filmmaking. And That's like everyone saying Hamlet is like the, oh, for Shakespeare and for theater. It's a matter of opinion, isn't it? Yes. Um, <laughs> I well, disagree with that, but that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, let's get into some current events. Uh, we have a few things going on. Namely, uh, we have some things happening during COVID that might normally not have happened. We have the show Parks and Recreation, uh, and their entire cast is reuniting for a Corona charity episode. So they're going to do a, a new Parks and Rec episode. The show ended years ago, um, went off the air in 2015. It stars Amy Poehler, Rashida Jones, Aziz Ansari, Nick Offerman, Aubrey Plaza, Chris Pratt, Adam Scott, Rob Lowe, Jim O'Hare, and Retta. I think she just has one name, Retta. Uh, I love this show. I'm so happy that it, you know, is coming back, uh, even just for an episode and it's for a good cause to raise money for COVID and to try to help out. I don't know. Are they going to do a zoom thing? They're not really explaining what they're going to do or how they're going to do it. 
it might be funny because at the end of Parks and Rec, all these characters kind of went off on their different paths and to different areas of the country. So it may be funny to show them as if it was like today and they're all on Zoom chats together, just reuniting, like trying to get through the COVID together. It'd be funny if they played off the actual thing that's going on. Um, they're going to have to. They're, they can't film it like a normal episode. So it's going to have to be COVID-centered with Zoom chats and things like that. It's just, I'm going to be interested to see what they do with characters. Like, I know I, I personally have not gone that far into the series. I think I got, like, through season partway, th- or all the way through season two, I think, maybe. Um, and I life got in the way and I never got back to it. But I know the basics of it, you know, Chris Pratt and Aubrey Plaza are a couple in the thing, in the show. Amy Poehler and Adam Scott are a couple in the show. And like how they're gonna be able to reconcile the fact that if they're doing it over Zoom that these people are not in the same place with each other. How are we, how are we doing that? <laughs> yeah, I would imagine it would, it's all gonna happen over Zoom. Um, a friend of mine recently did a, uh, reading so she wrote a script and she got a bunch of people attached to it and I think the script was about to move forward and then COVID happened so they adapted and they did a reading over Zoom of the first episode of the show I wish I could remember the name of it right now uh, but the writer is uh, someone I've worked with a couple of times her name is Tracy Lehman uh, she put together a whole show she's got a lot of people involved in the project too Gary Cole, Alan Tudyk um, I'm freezing up on the cast but that's something we can maybe talk about at another time. But people are adapting. People are using Zoom. People are making it happen. I mean, um, Saturday Night Live, they're doing their at-home, you know, versions of skits and things and just making things happen with the stuff that the the writers and the, and the actors have in their houses. I mean, look at what John Krasinski is doing with Some Good News, you know. It's created... Right completely out of a necessity for something good during the time of coronavirus. Um, but he's doing it all from home. He did a whole Zoom thing. He does, he did a Zoom prom. I think he's doing a Zoom graduation is the next thing that they're doing. Very so, cool. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, you know, some good news with John Krasinski. There's the Park and Rec, Parks and Rec reboot. Uh, and then there's us. There's also us. We're also creating some content for people to view. So we're, we're just as great as all those people. Um, <laughs> speaking of adapting for the times, uh, Oscars 2021 are talking about the Academy relaxing eligibility rules for VOD titles, video on demand titles, uh, and it's combining categories and it's changing. 2020 basically screwed up everything that the Oscars would normally do, planning. Yeah. It, to any movies that come out this year, if they come out, it's it's a limited thing because there's a whole chunk of the year where we don't have any movies. Um, so it's a little tricky. I don't know. It depends, too, on when we reopen. Um, but the Oscars are adapting a little bit. They are they're loosening their uh, usual strictness of regarding movies that are released directly to on-demand things like Netflix or Hulu. Uh, it's becoming easier for movies that are released to those services to be considered for our Oscars, which is kind of cool. Um, they also combined sound categories. I didn't see details on that, but it looks like they are condensing things. Uh, 
yeah it looks like they're just con combining things and it, it looks like they're just changing it up a little bit to make sense because some of the things like we talked about earlier some of the things with covid just might not make sense to have a whole category for it this year or but i have to wonder like they're relaxing the rules at least this year on you know video on demand and something that the article pointed out like the only only films that originally were slated to have a theatrical release or will have a theatrical release <clears throat> after all the shutdown stuff is done um are going to be eligible so a film like bad education which this article argued was one of the best films of the year is only available on hbo so that is not eligible for an academy award because it yeah. it's not going to have a theatrical release um and i have to wonder like you know, we're talking about the the downturn of, of theaters and things like that. Eventually, a lot of theater, like theaters, it's not going to be a regular thing to have a full and complete theatrical release. A lot of things are going towards streaming sites and on-demand videos. I mean, it's more cost-effective for the customer, for sure. Um, I know when Nick and I, if we go out to a movie out, it's absolutely for sure want to see in the theater and we know that the experience of watching it in the theater is going to be very important um but for a lot of films like we're, if we watch a trailer of something it's like oh you know i'll wait till it comes out and we'll just yeah. rent it I'm the same way. if it's not like a big action movie where you have to see it on a big screen to really appreciate uh or it, it might be tough to watch on a 15 inch macbook screen later on or you're TV, even if you have a 55 inch TV, we've talked about it before. There's no substitute for the movie theater experience, no. uh, but I'm the same way. If, if it's a comedy or something that doesn't really require a massive screen, I'm willing to wait most of the time. Um, but is the Academy gonna continue this as a normal thing year after year, or is this just for in the time of COVID? Well, tune into our podcast next year where we talk about that. Uh, who knows? I mean, we might have to wait until next year to really find that out because they might uh, loosen their strictness about it and then they might make it more strict again. Who knows? Uh, I know my buddy's been bothering me to watch the new movie with Chris Hemsworth directed by the Russo brothers titled Extraction that came to Netflix. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently it's really good. It's a big budget action movie. And it's just straight to Netflix. So I don't know if it was even planned for a theatrical release. I think it was just going to go to Netflix. Um, but, you know, if that movie is so good, does it deserve to be considered for an Oscar, whether it went to theaters or, or not? That's, that's a whole subject of debate. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I personally, I don't see any reason why it having to be released in theaters makes it more or less worthy of an award nomination or not. If it's a good film, it's a good film. Doesn't right. matter if it got released in a theater or if it didn't. I, it's still a good product. And if it deserves an award, then it deserves. If it deserves accolades, it deserves accolades. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> I mean, the same can be said too for indie movies or, I mean, there's, there's so many award things for indie movies. I'd well, love Oscars were to consider indie movies too. That'd be cool. I don't think there is an indie movie category, is there? No, but I don't think it's necessarily like if something could still be an indie movie and go up for an Oscar. I think Fruitvale Station was nominated for Oscars, and that technically is an independent film. Um, 
but I think it's, you know, cause it was released in theaters. That was part of, you know, why it was accepted. But I, I think so. I mean, and there's also a trend of like some of these films that are, are up for award season are only released in select theaters and they are indie films. They are lesser known. They're the more artistic films or whatever, you know, people feel, you know, fit in award ceremony, but not a lot of the general populace always gets to see all these films. It's not like, like when Titanic was the, you know, everyone in the world saw that film. Of course it was up for an Academy Award, but I think in the last couple of years, like we live in New York city. So we have access to a lot of theaters that will show these films. But if I went back home to Pennsylvania, I might not be able to see half of the things that are up for, for, the award ceremony and up and that's probably one of the reasons why viewership on the Oscars is down. People don't know these films are not connected with them. So why not allow films that are available for video on demand and streaming in the Oscars? Like, I don't understand why, what the block is there because then actually you might get more viewership from people who are rooting and pulling for these films that they actually get to see. Right. I think it's just the people that run the Academy being snooty wanting to put up their noses, flip their hair, and say, well, it wasn't in the theater, mm. so it can't be considered a real film, uh, uh, which is nonsense, because there's teams of people working to adapt that script and make it into a film. Uh, another thing I thought of, too, while we're talking about this, because we disagreed a little bit on the term adaptation, and because we're talking about this subject too, where should Oscar movies, should movies, uh, video on demand movies be considered for Oscars, might be good to hear some comments from people. So if you guys are listening and you want to comment your thoughts, maybe you agree with me, obviously, or if you maybe agree with Victoria on the term sure. adaptation. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave that up to the commenters. They know the right answer. Um, <laughs> the, but leave a comment, Let, leave your thoughts. We want to know. Uh, let's talk a little bit about AMC, our final current event, AMC Theaters. They are now, they came out and they said a couple days ago that they are refusing to play Universal movies when theaters reopen. And the reason for this is because Universal Pictures had all these big deals with AMC Theaters to put their movies in their theaters. Now the theaters all closed because of COVID. So Universal said, well, we don't want to waste these movies. We don't want to you know, wait forever to put them out. Let's put them on video on demand sites like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, what have you. And AMC theaters did not take to that very kindly. Uh, they're pretty pissed and they're pretty much saying we're not going to do business with them anymore because a lot of their movies that were going to bring in business for AMC theaters, uh, they went straight to the internet. So now when theaters do reopen up, there a lot of AMC theaters are like, what do we have? You know, we're. I I honestly think that's just one. It's an overreaction on the theater's part. You have to adapt during COVID nineteen, and yeah, they're essentially what the article said is it sounds like they're just playing chicken with Universal because Universal has these big budget titles coming up like Fast and Furious and all of that stuff. You're telling me that AMC is not going to release them in theaters, all because mm -hmm. they released Trolls World Tour on video on demand, come on. I don't know if it's just Trolls. I don't know what other movies are attached to the Universal name. Uh, I'm looking on the website now and I'm seeing Mulan. I think that's tied into Universal, Quiet Place. 
Uh, I mean, I'm just seeing the images here. I'm assuming that because they're on the article, they are a part of it. I know the troll. Mulan's Disney, though. Is Disney and Universal partnering up? Universal, I mean, these studios are so massive that I wouldn't be surprised if Universal is a part of every single movie that has ever come out, ever. If you told me that they played a small part, I'd be like, sure, yeah. Um, but they're, you know, it's a massive studio. So to say that we're never going to play any of their movies again is kind of crazy because AMC is already, the movie theater industry is already pretty tough because AMC is, is, AMC is getting ready to file for bankruptcy because of the huge downturn in movie theater attendance. And it's not just because you can like, sure, because you can stream a lot of stuff at home, you know, and it's not that much of a, a turnaround time now. Like I remember when I was a kid, it felt like a year would go by from the time a movie was in the theater to the time you could get it on VHS and take it home. But now it feels like you literally go like a month after the film is no longer available in the theater and it's streaming on Netflix or you can rent it on Amazon for $4.99 or whatever, what have you. Um, but, you know, going to the theater, going to the movies for me and Nick costs around 40 some odd dollars who has that money to spend all the time so you're turning your nose up at possible revenue because you're angry they didn't consult you first what are they going to do like sit on those films for months and then i mean it's not only the films that are supposed to be released now like right at the beginning of covid what happens if we're a couple months down the road and we're we've opened up slightly but you still can't have gatherings of more than 50 people well you're gonna be backed up with a lot of titles that were supposed to get released between now and then it's not gonna matter if they release a couple of the ones from the beginning on on demand you're not gonna have enough screens to show everything anyway so I don't I think I honestly think they're just overreacting and they're pissed and they're they're lashing out they're not being rational I mean I see it I, I agree with you there um... I do see their side of it a little bit in terms of like they're already not a dying industry, but there's, you know, it's not an easy industry to be in a movie theater. Uh, and then it's almost like this whole studio kind of swept out the rug from under them during the worst disaster where all of their businesses are shut down. They're kind of in a bad position and it's almost like getting kicked while they're down. And so I understand that they're like lashing out, but it, it's very reactionary to be like, well, we're never showing you movies again. It's just very angry. Uh, Great. When we open back up and can have people, then you're not going to show some of the biggest titles that actually bring people to the theater. Like, that makes no sense. Right. And, I mean, I can't say that I think Bloodshot was really going to be a game changer for the film industry. Uh, but there's quite a few movies that I'm sure Universal was attached to or will be attached to in the future for mm -hmm. AMC to just say, we're not working with them anymore. That's a big thing. Um, I'm sure Regal Theaters is sitting there going, like, when do we put out the press release that we're going to show movies as soon as we can? We're going to show all the movies. Because Regal does that, and as soon as they say that, everyone's like, fuck AMC. I'm going to Regal. Done. Because mm -hmm. those are the two I know. I don't know of any other two massive film or movie theater companies. I know AMC. I know Regal. Are there any others? What else? Uh, like big movie theater chains that go across. Yeah. 
I don't think so. Not, not that I can, not that I know of. If I think of a movie theater, those are the two that I think of. Yeah, it's worth mentioning too that we're in New York. We're in New York City, Astoria. Movie tickets here are like 19, 20 bucks, give or take. Uh, if you see a 3D movie, if you see an IMAX movie, you're probably dropping 25. Um, there's still places in America that people aren't spending 12, they're, they're spending like 12 bucks to see a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the areas where it's more expensive too, they had things like MoviePass for a while, that failed. Um, wasn't a sustainable business model, but right. I mean. MoviePass went bankrupt. AMC then created their own version. And I believe Regal has their own version of sort of like a subscription. You pay a certain amount a month, you can see as many movies as you want. Um, as to how well that was working, I don't really know. Um, but it's a little tricky because now you can't go to the movies no matter what. Yeah. I'm curious too, are those people still getting billed for those monthly bills? If you are, if you had an AMC monthly subscription and all the movie theaters are closed and they're still billing you, I want to hear about it because that sounds fun to talk about. We'll have you on the podcast or something. (laughs) Have you be like, where's my $80 AMC? Yeah, I can't go. And then they pull up your records that shows you haven't gone in like six months. So you would, even if COVID wasn't happening, you still wouldn't go to the theater, but it's fine. Right. Uh, I mean, I used to use MoviePass. When I got MoviePass, the first movie I saw with it was Blade Runner 2049. So I spent like the monthly amount, I think at the time was like $8. And MoviePass was made more than pays for itself because if we're paying 20 something dollars for a movie ticket, and granted, it only used to give like standard movie tickets. It wasn't doing like 3D or IMAX or whatever. But, uh, you know, I saw it on like a Wednesday afternoon. I saw Blade Runner 2049 for the monthly price of $8. And I saw like two other movies that month on top of that. And then the whole company collapsed in on itself like a dying star. But I did get my money's worth out of it. Um, that was the best thing of like in New York, unlike other places, you know, it, it's all public transportation and it takes an hour to get anywhere. So if you have a chunk of time, like if I had a chunk of time between an audition and having to go to work or having to go somewhere else and you didn't know what to do with yourself and you didn't want to just go park your ass in a coffee shop for two hours, you know, movie pass was great because I could just go do my audition, catch a movie and then go to work instead of having to like, I don't have, I have, if I, by the time I get to my front door, I'll have to turn around and come right back you know, kind of a thing. That's uh, that was struggle, yeah. That was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, you can't really take naps in the car. You could always take a nap in the subway, but <laughs> no, no, shake your head no. No, big, uh, big no. <laughs> uh, well, that's what's going on in the yeah. world right now. Uh, <laughs> COVID-19 is really taking its toll upon the film industry. It's changing. It's ever-changing. I'm sure we're going to come out of this, and things will be different. Hopefully not too different, so that we can still go to the movies, still enjoy them, and still have a good time. Hopefully keep some distance, you know, maybe six feet apart to watch our movies. Uh, But I'd really hate to lose the movie theater experience. I saw another article. I don't have it, but uh, about the reemergence of drive-in movie theaters. And I've been talking about that to a bunch of people and thinking that's a great idea. sucks for us but maybe there's a big park somewhere with a big building that has a big wall that can project a movie onto where people can sit six feet apart in the park and look up at the projection but 
I don't know. That might be tough for Astoria or Manhattan if you don't have a car. That it, it's gonna vary from place to place, whether or not like a drive-in movie or projecting something up on a wall is gonna work for you. I know, I think I saw in an article of like positive things that people are doing during COVID um, was uh, a, a man was uh, projecting classic films on to a building wall and he was sharing uh, like a, a website where people could stream the audio to it so they could watch it from, from their homes. Um, that's, but I don't, cool. that's fun. Yeah, I don't know. Out of my window, I can see um, a partition brick wall between the back of our building and another building. So I don't think that would work too well for where I'm at, but I like the idea. Hey, I, I have a projector. It's not a great projector, but I can always project a movie uh, across the street onto my neighbor's house, and they have a bunch of windows, so they can just have it in their, <laughs> in their house or something. Uh, but that's obviously super disruptive. You'd have to have the right space with the right wall. It can't, you know, it has to be done at night because these projectors don't really work outside like that. You know, who knows if drive-in movie theaters are gonna really make a huge comeback like that. It might be a temporary comeback and then maybe AMC's around can, or Regal can open up in certain areas where they have this big space because movie theaters are pretty big. Sometimes they're attached to other complexes and stuff. Uh, I had a movie theater by me growing up, the Comac Multiplex. It was this huge parking lot, and it was just by itself. I, I could see something like that happening there, where they have a big enough wall, and they can project some movies, have some cars pull up. Because everyone's safe in their cars, for sure. Um, I'm sure people will miss paying $17 for a thing of popcorn and soda, but get over yourself. <laughs> Bring your own snacks to the drive-in. Now you don't have to hide them in your purse. You can just keep them in your car. <laughs> I always hid them in my purse. I always brought snacks in my purse. Uh, well, I think that's a good place as any. Uh, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for watching the and listening to the AFC podcast. You can like, you can comment, you can subscribe. Please stay tuned for future episodes. Uh, we'd like to thank Jillian Vicko, our day player for today, for joining us on the podcast. Um, we'll include all the links so you can see all her stuff and keep updated on what she's doing. And my name is Victoria Fragnito. I'm Jim Galizia. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.